Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we ask that as we come to your word that you would show us with your word, Lord, who you are, Lord, what you desire from us. We know that you desire a humble heart. You desire obedience. Lord, you desire obedience not in our actions, but in our heart. Lord, in that secret place where men cannot see, but only our mind can see. Lord, you also see. We ask that you would draw us close to you, that our hearts would be drawn near, that our actions would follow suit. Men and women would see that we love you. What a great picture of baptism. We are followers of Christ, having been buried in his likeness unto death and raised as he was to walk in newness of life. Lord, we pray that that is our daily prayer, that we would die to ourself, that we would die to our own desires and seek your desires, to seek your will for our lives, to have the mind of Christ, to walk in step with the Spirit, keeping step with the Holy Spirit in our lives. Lord, use your word today to draw us to you. Use your word to convict us of sin. Use your word to encourage us that we might continue to follow after you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. you'll turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Incompatibility, irretrievable breakdown, unsustainable, irreconcilable differences. In 1970, California was the first state in the nation to offer what they began calling a no-fault divorce. In the next 49 years, every other state has instituted some sort of no-fault divorce where two people can divorce for any reason without alleging blame toward the other person. Our society is often opposed to the biblical things, to biblical ideals. Society and the Bible don't stand much more in contrast than they do with the issue of divorce. On one side of a great divide is society. No fault, no reasons necessary, divorce at will. And on the other side is the Bible, holding very strictly to a very specific desire for marriage. And between those two things is where we find ourselves, caught between society and what the Bible says. Many people looking toward divorce do so with the idea that being divorced will make them happy. Recently, a University of Chicago study showed that happiness after divorce is not a given. This University of Chicago study found that people who were unhappy in their marriage and then got divorced were still unhappy after their divorce. The sociologist said this, the study found that on average, unhappily married adults who divorced were no happier than unhappily married adults who stayed married. 
divorce did not typically reduce symptoms of depression, raise self-esteem, or increase sense of mastery. Even unhappy spouses who had divorced and remarried were no happier. The survey participants were asked to rate their marriage. Very happy, happy, neither happy or unhappy, unhappy and very unhappy. So that five-point scale from very happy to very unhappy. These were all married people, and five years later, they went back and they asked these same people again to rate your marriage on this scale. Some had divorced, and some had remained married. Of the ones who were married and stayed married five years later, they looked at two categories, the unhappy and the very unhappy. The study showed and confused the sociologists because those who were unhappy but remained married, 60% of them, five years later, were either happy or very happy. For those who said they were very unhappy in their marriage, the lowest category, but stayed married five years later, they were very happy or happy 80% of the time. 80% of people who had a bad marriage but remained married found them in very different circumstances just five years later. The results were confusing and shocking to the sociologist who said, Results like these suggest that the benefits of divorce have been oversold. We know that as Christians, and the sociologists are just starting to understand what God instituted was for our good. Feelings can't be trusted. They come and go. They change over time. And society says, if you're not happy, if you don't, feel the right feelings toward your spouse, then get a divorce. There's somebody out there for you. Mr. Wright or Mrs. Wright is waiting for you. Maybe you married the wrong person and the right person is out there. You just need to find the right person. Society gives us an endless number of reasons for divorce, including differences of opinion, financial problems, how many children, or the inability to have children, having little or no emotional connection to your spouse, lack of commitment, incompatible personalities, temperament differences, resentment, disappointments with everyday life, distance in the relationship, addictions, alcohol, drugs, TV, sports, gambling, someone who's unable to control their spending, constant arguing, extended families who disagree with your choice of spouse, an unwillingness to work on problems and differences, getting married too young, I didn't know who I was at the time, an absence of physical intimacy, that's no longer the person I married, no shared interests, poor communication, Lack of romance, workaholic, unrealistic or unmet expectations, and unhappiness. Those are real reasons that people get divorced, but those are not biblical reasons for divorce. Those are biblical reasons for counseling. Those are reasons to talk to someone and say, help us with these problems. Our goal as Christians is holiness. The world's goal 
is happiness. Sometimes those things align and sometimes they do not align. God's purpose not only for you, but also for your marriage is holiness. In our few minutes together, I won't be able to answer every question or address every specific situation. So if you have a specific situation, if you have a question, let me know. Call me, text me, my email address is on the website. I am more than happy to say, here's what the Bible says about these issues. Here's how to handle these things in a biblical way. So if you have questions, please do reach out. When I started a, a little over a year ago, one of my first calls for counseling came from a couple who had been married almost a dozen years. And they called because they had been divorced now for three years and they wanted to reconcile. The problem was their families hated the other spouse because the divorce was ugly and it was public and everybody that was close to them did not want them to get back together. They felt like they had sinned and wanted to reconcile. And so they said, how do we do that when everybody hates us? How do we do that when this is not a normal thing that you get divorced and then three years later you find yourself wanting to marry the same person that you divorced from three years ago? And so they've been married a little over a year now. And it's not been easy. They've had the same problems that they had for the first 12 years of their marriage, but they're working on it. And they know that this is God's plan for them and they're committed to God's plan, even if it doesn't feel good, even if it doesn't always bring them happiness. Their goal is not happiness, it's holiness. Let's read Matthew chapter five, beginning in verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. But I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife, except in a case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. The Bible has some specific teaching on divorce. You can find it in Genesis 2 when God created and then instituted the two shall become one flesh. Deuteronomy 24 we'll look at, Leviticus 17, Matthew 5 which we read, Matthew 19 we'll read, and then 1 Corinthians 7. That's kind of the big picture of the Bible's perspective on divorce. So we're going to look at not only Matthew 5 today, but we're going to spend some time in Matthew 19 looking at the big picture of biblical divorce. What Jesus here is doing is he's quoting from what Moses had given. In Deuteronomy 24, the Mosaic law, Moses' law to the people says, if a man marries a woman, but she becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, he may write her a divorce certificate and hand it to her and send her away from his house. Before the giving of this law, a man could kick out his wife for any reason and marry someone new. He would just tell her to leave and bring in a new wife. The problem was, culturally, she had no job, no skills, no land, no money, no way to even provide food for herself, and here she is out on the streets with nothing left to do. So what Moses is saying is, 
this certificate of divorce is required so that your wife can get remarried. So that when you kick her out, you have to give her a legal paper that she can then say, I am legally able to be remarried. The Mosaic Law instituted a time that brought about an end to chaotic marriages, chaotic divorces. It brought order to a chaos, and that's what the Mosaic Law was for. Among other things, it provided three basic parts that it taught three basic things. The first is rights of women. When a woman gets divorced, the man has to then give her that certificate. He has to do it the right way. It's written, and it has to be hand-delivered to her. Once that happens, she can get legally remarried. The second thing that Moses is teaching is that divorce is serious. It's to be taken seriously. It's not something to walk in and out of. In a moment of passion, a man kicks out his wife and she has nowhere to go, so she comes groveling back. And the man, having taken another wife, then also takes her back. Divorce is serious. It required a legal document. It required someone to draft it. It required witnesses. It required planning. And God was making it more difficult for the people to get divorced. And the third thing is it called to their memory the original intention of marriage. In Genesis 2, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. Verse 24, This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife as they become one flesh. It was not good for the man to be alone, so God provided a helper suitable for him. The two of them became one flesh. So Moses has given this law on divorce. And then we jump forward a couple thousand years, and the Pharisees, the people in Jesus' day that were experts of the law and they knew everything, the ones that Jesus is constantly fighting with and disagreeing with, the Pharisees have now taken the law that Moses gave, and they've converted it into their way of living. So Moses gave this somewhat broad law. If a man marries a woman, but she becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, he may write her a divorce certificate, hand it to her, and send her away from his house. Moses had given that law, but then the Pharisees asked, but what does displeasing mean? What is something indecent? What do those things mean? And then how do they apply to our lives? So the Pharisees couldn't come to terms with what this means and how do we apply this. What they did agree with was the process, the procedure of divorce. A man would get witnesses. A man would go to an expert. He would have written what they called a get he would hand the get to his wife in, the front, in front of witnesses. The witnesses would look and say, yeah, the reason that you want to get divorced is legitimate. And the man would hand this certificate to his wife. His wife could accept it or reject it, but she had to reject it, or she had to accept it because she had no other choice. They would force her to accept it. So the man could then go about with his life how he wanted. And the woman was then divorced. So they all agreed on that process, the procedure of how to do it. What they didn't agree with, the Pharisees, was when someone can get divorced. So three famous rabbis argued about this endlessly. The first one 
was Rabbi Akiva, who said a man can divorce his wife even if she finds another woman more beautiful. He said that the word displeasing means that if he finds someone more pleasing, then his wife is automatically displeasing, and so, therefore, you find someone you like better, you can get divorced. The next rabbi, Hillel, said that if a wife burns her husband's dinner, they can divorce. The husband can divorce if she burns his dinner because that is something indecent. Anything indecent, including something as simple as a mistake, is grounds for a divorce. The third rabbi, so those are kind of the very liberal reasons for divorce, anything goes. But then the third rabbi, Shammai, came and he said, no, 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 something indecent is really speaking of adultery. It's sexual immorality. It's not just whatever you don't like. It's not something displeasing that is in the moment. And so we had these kind of two camps, Akiva and Hillel and Shammai, who believed very differently as they tried to understand what was Moses telling us. And that's the point that we find Jesus at in Matthew 19. So turn with me to Matthew 19, but keep your hand back in Matthew 5. We're going to go back. In Matthew 19, they come to Jesus, and they want to put Jesus right in the middle of this long-standing debate. So Jesus, they say, do you agree with these rabbis that anyone can get divorced for any reason? Or do you agree with this rabbi that it has to be a very good reason? Jesus, you pick which one you like. And they said this to test him because they wanted to put Jesus in an impossible situation. It was always their goal to make Jesus look bad. And so if Jesus chose one or the other, he gets to make new enemies. And that's always what they want is for Jesus to have more enemies. So they asked Jesus an impossible scenario, which rabbi do you side with? Is it anybody can divorce or hardly anybody can divorce? So let's read Matthew 19, starting in verse 3. Some Pharisees approached him to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife on any grounds? Jesus' response. Haven't you read, he replied, that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female? And he also said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be joined with his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked him, did Moses command us to give divorce papers and send her away? He told them, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because of the hardness of your hearts. But it was not like that from the beginning. I tell you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. So some Pharisees approached Jesus, verse 3, and asked him, is it okay for us to get divorced like Akiva and Hillel said for any reason on any grounds? And instead of just answering their simple yes-no question, which Jesus does answer their question eventually, he didn't start by answering. He said, let me tell you something different. Haven't you read? He said in verse 4. Jesus doesn't give them the yes-no question, but he says, haven't you read? Don't you know about the Genesis account when God created all things and then created man and created woman? And here's what he said. He made them male and female. 
For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but they are one flesh. So instead of answering, he gives them this teaching that certainly they knew from the beginning. Instead of telling them about divorce, Jesus starts with his expectations of marriage. So it's a little off at first because they want to just know about divorce. But Jesus says, before you understand divorce, you have to understand marriage. If you don't understand the purpose and the expectations of marriage, your picture of divorce is automatically going to be skewed. So to understand divorce, you have to understand marriage. And these are the four things that Jesus points to as expectations of marriage. The first is that they're heterosexually made. He made them male and female. Marriage is between one man and one woman. Those are God's words. The second expectation is that the man and woman will be intimately attached. A man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. The two will become one. It's the same word that the Greeks used for glue or cement, that they are permanently and intimately attached. The third thing is Jesus' expectation is that they're permanently changed. The two are no longer but one flesh. It was a joining of one man and one woman into one flesh. They're no longer individual parts, but now they are one new unit that was created by combining two parts. The fourth thing that Jesus says is that they are inseparably changed. What God has joined together, let no one separate. The first marriage had no provision for divorce. It was presumed that Adam would be married to Eve until death do they part. This new creation was not man-made, it was God-made. And what God made shouldn't be separated. This is Jesus' divine model of marriage. In the discussion of divorce, he starts with this picture of marriage. Now, before we get to Jesus' actual answer, the Pharisees have this follow-up question. So is it okay to get divorced for any reason? You have to understand marriage. Okay, then, Jesus, well, what about this? Why did Moses command us to divorce our wives and send them away? But Jesus says, he didn't. Moses permitted you to get divorced. You see, the Pharisees wanted to get divorced to have things their own way. It was their preference and their desire, but Jesus rejected their desire and said, Moses never commanded anything like that. God's plan from the beginning was that one man and one woman would be one flesh. Why would God command them to be separated? Jesus is telling them, this is your way, not God's way. You're choosing what you desire to do out of the hardness of your heart, not because this is what God has commanded, and not because this is God's way. The biblical picture of understanding divorce is understanding marriage. The two shall become one. It's at the center of every picture of marriage. It's at the center of every divorce that the two are no longer choosing to be one, but the two are ripping themselves apart. 
that they might again try to be one. So the Bible offers two exceptions of the till death do us part, part of marriage. The first exception is sexual immorality. The verse that we read in Matthew 5, but I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife, except in the case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. In Matthew 19, I tell you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. It's very straightforward. Sexual morality is any illicit sexual contact outside of marriage. That's the only reason that Jesus gives for divorce. And Paul gives one other one in 1 Corinthians 7. This one's a little more nuanced. What Paul says is if an unbelieving spouse leaves the marriage, if an unbelieving spouse abandons the marriage, the believing spouse does not have to fight for or stay in the marriage. The believing spouse can let the unbeliever leave. 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says, To the married I give this command, not I but the Lord. A wife is not to leave her husband, but if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. The wife can't leave, and that's as far as she could do legally. She wasn't able to have a legal certificate drawn up and given to her husband. So Paul's saying, you can't do what is the legal equivalent by leaving your husband. And a husband can't just leave his wife. Even though Moses allowed it, Paul's saying, don't do it. Paul goes on, but I, not the Lord, say to the rest, if any brother has an unbelieving wife and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. Also, if any woman has an unbelieving husband and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce her husband. For the unbelieving husband is made holy by the wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. So if two people do not believe in the Lord and they get married and one of them becomes a believer sometime after their marriage. What Paul is saying, do not get divorced on those grounds. If the two unbelieving people get married and then one of them becomes a Christian, that person cannot leave the marriage. They're not unequally yoked. They're not, the other things don't apply to this. Paul is saying, the believing spouse, the Christian, must stay with their unbelieving spouse. Paul goes on, verse 15. But if the unbeliever leaves, then let him leave. A brother or sister is not bound, not enslaved is the word, in such cases. God has called you to live in peace. Wife, for all you know, you might save your husband. Husband, for all you might know, for all you know, you might save your wife. So in the case that the two unbelieving people get married and one of them becomes a Christian and the other one decides to leave. The unbelieving person leaves the marriage. Then the believing person can let them leave. The goal of living at peace. 
So the two unbelievers get married. I want to say this like 10 times so we're clear. The unbelieving people get married. One of them is now a Christian. The unbelieving person leaves, physically leaves. That believing person is no longer bound to that marriage because the unbelieving person has then abandoned the marriage. The believing Christian is free to get remarried. Now, the word Paul uses for leave means two things. It, number one is a physical leaving. It literally means to depart, to not be in one's presence. Paul is not saying that if a spouse has emotionally left the marriage, you can leave the marriage. Paul is not saying that if the unbelieving spouse is spiritually or some other feeling-based reason for leaving the marriage. What Paul is saying is, if the unbelieving spouse has physically left the marriage, the believing spouse is free to remarry. The second use of the word is divorce. So if a spouse has physically left or divorced, the believing spouse is free to remarry. Now it's my opinion that if the unbelieving spouse leaves and chooses not to file for divorce, that the believing spouse should not file for divorce. I believe that the unbelieving spouse may have separated, but unless the unbelieving spouse says, I have filed for divorce, here's the paperwork, then Paul says, you're not, you're not bound to that person and live in peace. That's my opinion. The however here, which is the largest of all howevers, is at the end of verse 16. Wife, for all you know, you might save your husband. Husband, for all you know, you might save your wife. If you divorce from your unbelieving husband or your unbelieving wife, you have no opportunity to save your wife, to save your husband. Your light for Christ no longer shines in their life. If I can say the darker the heart of your spouse, the darker the attitude of your spouse, the darker the life of your spouse, the darker the attitude towards you and the hatred toward God that your spouse has, the brighter your light shines. For all you know, you might save your spouse. There was a woman in our church who is now moved that had a similar situation to this. And I called her this week because I wanted to make sure that I remembered the situation accurately. So I called her and clarified everything, and for a long time, her husband was not a believer. They got married. They were both unbelievers, and a few years after marriage, she came to know the Lord. Her husband wanted nothing to do with God, nothing to do with the Bible, nothing to do with prayer. In fact, he banned prayer in his presence. He told her, 
do not pray anywhere around me or anywhere that I am at. Not at dinner, and if I walk into the room, you're done praying. He didn't want anything to do with the Lord. One of the rare times that he came to church, a man in our congregation told him about Jesus and said, let me pray for you, and started praying for the man. And he looked at his wife with a smirk and winked at her, telling her, this is just a joke, mocking the man I was praying for him. Her husband was rude. He was addicted to pornography. He didn't show care for her. He didn't love her. He didn't hold her hand. So she was ready for a divorce. She was unhappy. So she came to church to ask for counseling, and the pastor she met with told her to stay with him. He said, continue to love him. Continue to share the light of Christ with him. For all you know, you might save your husband. She hated the advice and fought with the pastor, and every week she'd meet with him and fight with him more, threatening to take whatever was on the desk and throw it out the window. But she continued to meet with him week after week. That went on for years. And they moved, and then one day he had a heart attack. And then he had to have open-heart surgery. The doctors told her, we don't know if he's going to make it. He's weak, there's a very good chance that he dies, and you've talked to him the last time, you've seen him for the last time. After surgery, he was on a ventilator, he was unresponsive, couldn't communicate, and then he started to get a little better, and then a few weeks later, he was off the ventilator, and the first thing that he said to her is, I've been talking with God. For 46 years, she was married to this man waiting to hear words like that. She said, literally, immediately, he was different. His speech was different. His attitude was different. His temperament was different. His Christian daughter came to see him, and the first thing she said was, who's this nice man and where's my dad? <laughs> when I talked to her, She said it took 46 years for those words to come true. For all you know, you might save your husband. So as she was talking, I was just writing things down. I want to share some of the quotes with you. She said that he came to know the Lord and didn't know how to pray and felt insecure about praying. And so every night at dinner, he would ask someone to pray. He knew it was important. He had totally changed in the way he felt, and he wanted somebody to pray for dinner. She said, he came to church with me. He willingly told me that he loved me, something he didn't do. He wanted to hold my hand. He wanted to sit on a park bench, holding my hand, and telling people about the Lord. Apart from him being sick, those were some of the best days of my life. She said, I prayed for him. I loved him, 
and I knew that if he were to become a Christian, our marriage would be better. My prayers were selfish in the beginning. I wanted him to be a Christian so I could continue living with him. It turns out I couldn't change him, but God changed me. Before I started counseling, I didn't think there was a problem with me. I knew I had to change the outward parts when I first became a Christian, the smoking and cussing, the things that people could see and hear. I was trying to live the Ten Commandments. And then I went to a Bible study with Robin and realized that it was all about my heart. My prayer for him became real. And I started believing that God really could change such a stubborn man. Before he died, I asked him, did you ever love me? He said, no. You were convenient. But he went on, he said, I first loved you when I realized God's love for me and his love for you. That was four months ago. Four months ago from today. He lived 69 years hating God. 69 years hating God. 46 years hating her. Hating her beliefs in God. And he spent five months after repenting, after putting his faith in Christ. And then he died. 69 years of hating God. Five months of Christianity. That's what she got. 46 years of a husband who hated her. A husband who didn't care if she walked in when he was doing things that he shouldn't do. No regard for her, no love for her. First Corinthians seven sixteen, Wife, for all you know, you might save your husband. Husband, for all you know, you might save your wife. She said she would do it all again. She would do it all again knowing that her husband has a saving faith in Jesus. That when she dies, she will be in heaven and she will see him again. 46 years. Probably one of the worst marriages that I know. And she would do it all again. If not for Jesus, she would not do it all again. She would do it all again that her husband might be saved. If your marriage is struggling, there's hope. If your spouse is an unbeliever, there's hope. If your marriage is struggling, you don't have to struggle alone. You don't have to put on a happy face at church and fight in the parking lot. You don't have to yell and scream on the way here, pause the argument, 
and resume it at 1230. You can have a marriage that goes from unhappy and very unhappy to very happy. It's often difficult to do alone. Call me. Look around. Look around at the marriages you respect. And for the safety and the sanctity and the love of your marriage, go to someone and say, can we get together with you? Will you talk to us? Will you help us? God wants your marriage to work out. Divorce is never ideal. It was permitted for the hardness of their hearts, not because Moses commanded it, not because that's what God wants. Remember the bride of your youth. Remember the times that were good. The bad times, the bad emotions, the negative feelings, they come and they go. If you have a healthy marriage, 50% of marriages end in divorce. If you are one of the 50% that are not headed toward divorce, 50% are. Nobody asks for help. So if your marriage is healthy, find someone and reach out to them. Offer to take them to dinner. Offer to talk with them. You have to seek them out. You have to ask questions. You have to ask difficult questions. The healthy marriages need to meet the needs of the unhealthy marriages. The Bible gives two exceptions for divorce. Sexual immorality, and if the unbelieving spouse abandons the marriage. If knowing that the word of God says those two things and those two things alone, and you still want to be divorced, and you care not for what the Bible says, my encouragement to you is to divorce yourself from your own sin. Divorce yourself from your selfishness. Divorce yourself from your love for self more than your love for God. God's clear that divorce is not the answer. The God of all creation, having called you by name, has a plan for your marriage, has a plan for you, and it's not divorce. Today we've all been blessed with life and with breath. And my honest prayer is that we will all die still married when that life and breath ends, that we will desire the bride of our youth, spouse of our youth, the one to whom God has given us. I also know that there are a lot of people here that are already divorced and remarried. There are so many difficult situations and so many nuances, so many things that I can't speak to in 30, 45 minutes. If you want to talk about those things, I would love to talk about them. We'll talk about what the Bible says, how it applies to your situation now, and what God wants for you moving forward. Let's pray.
Lord, may we be a people that are called by the name of Christ to forgiveness of our sins, to repentance of our sins. Lord, if happiness comes along with that, then we praise you for the happiness. Lord, but happiness is secondary to our holiness. Lord, we ask that you would make us holy. That you would help us to know and to see that we are set apart, that we are called to be different. Some things are set apart for noble use. Lord, you have called us for noble use. Lord, we pray that our lives would reflect that. That our marriages would reflect that. That the outside world would see that our marriages are ones that are meant for you, that they're honoring to you, that they fulfill the biblical command of two becoming one flesh. Lord, but we also know that in difficult teaching, there's guilt, there's shame, there's mistakes that were made. Lord, I pray for forgiveness for those situations. We can't undo the past. We can't fix the rights that we've made, the wrongs that we've made. We can only move forward. Lord, I pray for those people that are feeling guilty and shame about their past actions, their past choices. Lord, that you would give them freedom. Lord, as baptism is a picture of our old selves dying and our newness of life, I pray that they would see that in you, that there is not condemnation eternally for these sins, but there's forgiveness, there's hope, there's repentance. Lord, for those that don't know you, that might be the unbelieving spouse, and for those that have an unbelieving spouse, Lord, I pray for grace for them. How difficult it is for a wife that wants her husband, a husband who wants his wife, and yet those unbelievers don't want anything to do with you. Lord, I pray that you would use the spouse to bring conviction, to bring repentance, to bring salvation. Lord, that we might continue to tell these stories of your action in someone's life, that you've worked, that you've redeemed, that you've called to yourself. Lord, we thank you that, know, that we know that we can come to you in all things, things that we don't understand and things that are difficult. Lord, give us minds and eyes to see what you've called us to, what you've set before us, and may we walk in your ways. Lord, as we take communion, we do these things in remembrance of Christ on the cross. What a picture we have of dying to ourselves, Christ willing to die for us. Lord, we ask that as we come to you in communion, as we join together as one body, serving one Lord, that our hearts would be right before you. Lord, give us this week, not as a, a day today and then a day, six days to fall back into our own sin, but seven days to serve you that we might gather together again next week. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.